Hi. Well, here we are again. Um, this was this was supposed to be the the, the send off final seminar. We've actually got it was a big. I don't know if anybody went, but there was a pretty big social law library seminar la, uh, this Tuesday um, with a bunch of retired judges, um, which I thought was pretty good. And um, so we didn't want to um, get in the way of that. Um, figuring a lot of people that would be interested in both programs, so. We actually do have one more uh, seminar next Tuesday, the 18th, about conciliation programs that are available. Um, there's actually some really good programs that are free that I think people should really take advantage of if they can. There's the limited uh, conciliation, limited uh, issue conciliation program that involves a retired free time with a retired judge. And there's also, um, a bunch of the counties have various bar conciliation programs. So we've got um, Judge Ricky, Jocelyn Welsh uh, from the administrative office and Nan Sauer, um, who does a lot of the conciliation work. Um, they're gonna be on next Tuesday uh, at one o'clock and we'll be going through all the different programs that are available. And um, it's, it's a really good tool to add to your practice. So I, I highly recommend you, you check in on that. Um, but today we wanted to do something a little bit different. So I've got my friend, my good friend here, uh, Bill Levine, um, who hopefully uh, everyone here uh, knows. Um, he decided he'd come out of retirement for, uh, to join us and see how things are going. <laughs> the, 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 fir the, the first and only time maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, Bill, I see, uh, I see you've got something on your t-shirt there. What's that say? It says Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, which is what my, my most current job is. Ah, all right. So uh, is, this, is this a step up from your, your, last, your last employment? Oh, sure. sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been, doing, I've been doing habitat now for almost four years. Um, I was doing, a part, I was doing it um, one day a week when I was still practicing in the Boston area. I would shoot out on Monday nights, do my day of work on Tuesday, come back on, on uh, Tuesday evening. And now I'm working two days a week um, building. We are in about six weeks into our first uh, post-COVID um, work scheme, which is um, only working outdoors and with limited number of volunteers at each um, project. So wow. projects are going much more slowly now. Yeah, um, I bet when you have a team of three or four people versus 15 or 16. Yeah, I was going to say, how long does it usually take to build, to put a house up? Um, our houses take about a year. Um, they're small, they're, they're, they're small houses. Um, I'm working on my ninth, my ninth house now. Wow. Um, and um, they, take, they take a year from the pouring of the pad to uh, the closing. And we just, we closed one yesterday. It was very exciting. Wow. And you do everything? Lay down the floors. Uh, I don't do everything, but um, we um, we do from the the, um, the the pad is poured by professionals. Um, we do everything then to the point uh, where rough plumbing, electrician, like and electrical work goes in. Oh yeah, sure. And the uh, voc ed the voc ed school comes in and does all the plumbing and electrical work. Um, Often we don't do the roofing, but this time we're doing the roofing, which is, which is, I'm not looking forward to. Wow. Um, and other than those, than those things, electrical, um, um, plumbing, um, and pouring the pad, we basically do everything else. Holy cow. As a, as a big learning curve, learning how to build a house. Yeah, no kidding. I was going to say, so what, what's your normal duty? Are you the, are you the water boy or the, the nail holder? Uh, yeah, so you have a higher higher position. Well, I, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to stay out of all supervisory roles. Gotcha. Um, and I've been leveraged a couple of times into it, supervising crews for a day. Um, and there's not there's nothing more middle management than middle management at Habitat, um, where things can only go wrong. Um, I see. But I mostly, see. mostly, I'm I'm a pretty I'm a pretty high skilled um, worker. I do most I do most everything. I don't like going to, going to the second story, third story. Yeah, I don't blame you. So what else have you been up to since you retired? What's that? What else have you been up to? 
Um, well, since, since uh, COVID hit, um, we've been very close to home. Um, I, have a, I, I have a wood shop at my house that I, that I pump out a lot of stuff. My, my poor kids have houses full of stuff that I've built. Um, and so is our house. So I've done, done a lot of that, I've read a lot of books. Um, and I've got 12 grandchildren. Um, so they take up a fair amount of time, although that, that has been on the back burner a lot since, uh, since March. Um, and um, that's, that's those are what we do for the most part. And we come in and out of Boston um, every, every other week or so to see, to see kids and see grandkids. Um, so the time, the time um, absolutely flies by. It's pretty shocking to me, actually. I, I mean, it's funny you say that because, I mean, this has been going on for almost, what, six months now. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I've been down, I'm, I'm now back in my office in Newton, but I just moved. I mean, you know, I've been on the Cape. Yeah. I think most people who watch the seminar, I've been doing most of these from my Cape house, um, you know, basically since March. And um, we just came back last week. And I said to my wife, I was like, goodness gracious, I can't, it, it feels like we've been gone for like three weeks, but it's really been six months. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that's about. But well, it really can, feels like time's flown. I can tell you that in, in uh, January um, or so, January, early February this year, I was starting to get the first year retirement yips and sort of wondering why nobody cares what I say anymore and nobody calls me and, and all that kind of stuff. And COVID shut that down. Well, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> it shut, it shut that down. <laughs> well, you sort of started about why I don't, don't matter anymore. Um, oh. I was talking to friends who are trying to run practices and thinking, boy, man, I would not want to have that pressure right now to keep practice going. And I know it's really been, it's been wild. Um, I, I, well, I want to get into that today with that, with, with you and with everybody that's on with us. Cause I mean, I think it's a pretty interesting topic. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember because I had an arbitration with you back in, um, what was it, like August or so last year. And I yep. think you were starting to wind things down. Yep. It, my, my, it probably took a few more months before you really shut it all the way. Well, that was the last case I had that I heard. Um, and I was still in the midst of writing another case that um, I that really September. But since the end of September, I haven't done any, any work at all. Wow. Wow. So that October, November, December, January was my pre-COVID retirement period. Um, and um, it, it's astonishing to me how fast it's gone by. It sounds like no regrets. Zero. I mean, you sort of, you sort of got out at just the right time, I guess, because yeah. this has been a huge transition. Yeah. Um, of course, nobody could have foreseen what was going to happen. But, no. um, but yeah, I just feel very lucky that, about, about the timing of it. Um, on my, my rent, my rent obligation was over by the end of, by the end of October. Um, so there was nothing going out, nothing coming in either, but nothing was going out at least. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, it was good not to have a lot of external pressures. I'll tell you that. Yeah. When, yeah. when COVID, when, New, when New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts caught fire, we were actually down in Florida. Um, we had driven down cause we had the time. And um, it was remarkable how Floridians um, not only didn't take it seriously, but they truly thought it was a joke. Well, isn't that still what's going on? Uh, except now, now they're they're <laughs> dying by the handful. They weren't then. Yeah. And they didn't think that was going to happen to them. And um, while we were there, all the events we were going to go to one by one ultimately were canceled, and we and we beat it back north. And it was fascinating. The, the road was full of um, Canadians who were trying to race back to get across the border before the border was going to be shut. Wow. And as we got further north and you stopped in each rest area, um, people became less defiant and more compliant with, uh, with the notion that something was going on bad. Yeah, yeah. We were very, very happy to get back and, and resettled um, for the most part. Uh, we were back by March 17th or March 18th, I think. And it looks like you're somewhere pretty nice. Uh, uh, right now I'm, I'm in Anasquam. Um, we're visiting 
kids and grandkids for the day. Oh, good. They say they're going to stay out at the beach while I'm doing this, but it's possible somebody might show up while we're, while we're talking. But oh, yeah, awesome. it's pretty up here. We're looking at Wingersheep Beach. Oh, I was nice. saying to my wife as we came up here that, that when it comes to North Shore towns and Newton and Wellesley street addresses, primarily they all mean a divorce case to me. <laughs> and, and as we were coming up, went to an A, say, oh yeah, that, that case, that, that case. I remember, I remember a case that was on, that where Wingersheep Beach was the actual start of the case, the beach itself was where some things happened which led to the end of the marriage. And so I'm sitting here looking across at Wingersheet Beach remembering that case. Nan might have been involved in it, although I suspect it was probably a little bit before her time. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I can't even, I guess I'll, I guess I'll get there someday um, yeah. when you rack up enough cases. How many, in your heyday, how many cases would you have at one time? When I was, when I was uh, seriously when I was litigating. Representing clients? Uh, 40s, maybe. Oh, okay. Something like that. Um, and usually about, usually 20 of them were, were very active. And the other ones were in various stages of disrepair. <laughs> you know, waiting for trial dates that right. were going to occur in three years. Yeah, yeah. Like but they're usually 20 hot cases and 40 total, maybe. Yeah. And, and when I was in my mediation and arbitration practice, um, not that much different, obviously. Not that much different, but obviously... Um, different kind of intensity of cases and they didn't last you know two to six years they lasted they lasted you know two to eight months yeah yeah well i'm glad to hear that um everything's working out so well for you that's great and then you got you got people like me um i took over a brand new lease maybe some of the lawyers on the line can relate to this i took over a brand new lease in january um and i redid my suite with new carpets and new paint and new this and new that. And then three months or two and a half months later, my office shut down and, and nobody's been here for the last six months and no one's going to be here for the next six months. So <laughs> yeah. well, my, my daughter rented a, uh, a studio for the first time. She's a photographer and, and she decided that it'd be smart to sign a three-year lease. And that, and that was in uh, November of 2019. So she's now stuck with a three-year lease and she can't go anywhere near, near a studio. So it's, it's no, pretty, pretty weird. It's a wild, it's a wild time. I mean, I think um, just from talking to other lawyers, I know, um, uh, is this the 1 p? The question is, is this the 1 p.m. webinar on the probate court? Are we waiting for something or did I miss something or I am in the wrong place? Uh, no, this is, <laughs> this is, uh, this is a uh, webinar. Um, we're going to be talking about probate and family court. Um, this was, this particular seminar was meant to be a little more casual um, where people could chime in and I, you know, we're just sort of, uh, I think today, I think the interesting topic that I want to go through with everybody is um, really just how this is affected. This is really the, the meant to be the wrap up for the summer of, of the programming that we've done. And um, I think it's an interesting time to talk about how it's affected lawyers in their practice and different things we might be able to think about, um, so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's funny when... Um, getting into it, I guess, Bill. It's funny when, when, when all this happened in March, I did the first seminar and I was talking to the first seminar I did was with, I believe it was with Randy Kaplan and uh, judge Patricia Gorman. Um, I think uh, uh, Pamela Casey O'Brien was on that seminar too. And um, this is like the last week of March or first week of April. We had, we had, I think, seven or 800 people on the seminar. And um, yeah, it was huge numbers. And the courts had just closed. And every, obviously, everyone wants to know what's going on. And, um, you know, at the time, I think everyone was thinking this was going to be, you know, two to four week type of thing, no big deal. Sure. You know, we'll handle some emergency cases uh, first. We'll put a few things on the back burner and then we'll figure it out. 
with the, you know, over the summer or, or whatever, but um, boy, it really hasn't turned out that way at all. Well, if you think about it, it's extraordinary. At the most, in the course of an average year, the courts might be shut down for snow for one day. Yeah. Or maybe for two, but that's about all people are used to. And I mean, who the heck ever thought the schools would ever be shut down? Well, I know. And that's the, that's the next big thing we're all going to be dealing with. I mean, it's, it's really astounding to me how, you know, I, I know for me it's completely changed you know, the way that I'm, I guess, I guess the issues are still the same in terms of, you know, people getting divorced and, and custody and child support or alimony or what have you. But the way that I feel like the way I approach the cases, the way I interface, and it's, it's, it's like a whole new practice now. I mean, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you that the, um, the mediation and arbitration practice that I would start today, as opposed to the one I finished last fall, would, would probably look very different and probably look very different for the long haul. Yeah. Um, if, if, you, if you stop and think about what people do in a mediation session, um, there's, a, there's a certain amount that goes on that's all about the venting process. Um, and the venting process can be worth a half an hour or it could go on for 10 hours if you allow five sessions to subsume it, to be subsumed by it. Yeah. And um, um, it, it, it seems to me, I, I had started for about a year, a year and a half before I shut down my practice of doing a go-to-meeting. Um, oh, no kidding. Of, of uh, mediations. And what I found was that people were much more attentive to the checklist of issues that were going to get them through the process and, and in front of the judge much more quickly and efficiently when they weren't right next to each other at a table. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me that in the situation that we have now and going forward, there's always going to be some purpose to be in the same room for some period of time. If for no other reason, if you're, if you're a litigating lawyer to meet your client and get a sense of your client's tells and your client's weaknesses and strengths and so forth. And certainly when you're a mediator trying to figure out what the two people are about, but you can, you can do a lot of that in a lot in one session. And so I, I, when I envision what I would, what I would do, I might meet people one time in person when it's, when it's allowed and then, then revert to, to all video versions of it. Yeah. Um, let people get it out of the system and then get down to work. I mean, it's amazing. In in the last six months, and I'm, you know, and I want to say to the audience, you know, I know everyone's here. They've got their cameras off and their microphones off. Um, but please feel free to to plug in and turn those things on and feel free to ask questions. Feel free to comment. Tell us um, what you think about, about anything. Um, that's what this seminar was really supposed to be about. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, if, if no one wants to, Bill and I are more than happy to keep going back and forth for the next, the next 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> we're, 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 both, we're both fine with the sound of our own voices. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the, the funny thing for me is, um, to your point, you know, I haven't met a single person probably since the beginning of March. Yeah. And clients, you know, prior to that, uh, there was, you know, there were, there were very few clients who would hire, you know, we, we'd have that initial phone call, you know, maybe a half an hour or something, just very, you know, what's going on, get to know each other. And, um, you know, they'd say, okay, you sound great. I like you. I want to, but I'm not, I'm not giving you any money until I meet you. Shake your hand, you know, see what you're, you know, see what you're like. Not a single person has done that. Not a single person has said, I need to meet you before I retain you. You know, it's just, it's not even on people's radars anymore. It's astounding yeah. how quickly, you know, these sort of paradigm shift has happened. Well, I don't think, I don't think as, as um, practicing lawyers or we are, we habitually have been attentive enough to just how inconvenient and inefficient our time with clients has been to the clients. Yeah. 
and a totally separate issue from them paying for eight hours of time to go to court for five minutes of work in front of a judge. That, but to come to your office and to battle traffic and to, and to park and to pay for parking and to come upstairs and find out you're running late and got a person or two before, they're not going to put up with that anymore. Oh, that's a great point. I think they're learning they don't have to. I don't know how to raise my hand because I can't find the blue hand. <laughs> you raise your voice. It's good. So uh, I'm doing it the old-fashioned way. I'm yeah, a trustee state's attorney in Belmont, and uh, my colleagues and I are puzzled by some of the dramatic improvements. And I have to say, some of the um, court personnel have been heroically wonderful. Yeah. But it's not good filing for estates. I have filed numerous um, petitions to open an estate, formal, informal, testate, intestate, all unsupervised. And it's kind of Alice in Wonderland meets Franz Kafka, and they go out to lunch with Schrodinger and Schrodinger's cat. Uh, we can't find any replicable predictability. And it's yeah. difficult to explain this to the clients. Is it better to e-file or to mail it certified mail or to drop it in the Dropbox or to gussy it up as an emergency? Oh, those are great, really great questions. I mean, um, I'm, Bill, if you don't mind, I'll jump in first. Um, I mean, I can just tell you from what I've been experiencing and, you know, all the conversation, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with court staff and judges this year. Um, I mean, I was telling Bill on the phone five minutes before this seminar started that um, I just filed on Wednesday of last week, I filed, you know, so a, a handful of mundane things in three different cases uh, in Middlesex, Lowell, uh, Middlesex North Division. And, um, you know, just uh, I think one of them was a complaint. One of them was an answer, an appearance, you know, stuff like that. Nothing crazy. And none of it found its way to mass courts. Um, it's still not there. Um, what we did was we brought it to the Dropbox. We physically went up there, stuck it in the Dropbox, because that was after trying to do the e-filing, having it rejected, going on the virtual registry, being told that I couldn't upload it on the virtual registry and that my options were to mail or to drop off. So we dropped off. And after about 10 calls this week, I finally, you know, escalated it and found out that in Middlesex right now, there's an approximately two week backlog on all filings, um, which is just, I mean, you know, it's, family it's shocking. On the family side or on the probate and family side? Oh, for, well, for me, I'm just talking about the family side. I mean, it, it, it could very well be different on the probate side, but but I'm assuming it's the same sort of technical problems. I mean, you know, in most of you, you, you're totally right, Nancy. I mean, it, it's a real mess. I mean, I know Essex is doing a great job and you can actually go on their virtual registry and do literally everything. And I'm pretty sure that's the only county where you can get anything done in a reasonable time right now in terms of the filings. I mean, it's brutal. Appointments. Yeah. Letters of authority for a personal representative issued in a way that the asset custodians will, you can get something that's got a red um, marking at the top of when it was filed and trying to explain to whoever it is at Schwab, Fidelity, Bank of America, you name it, that yes, this thing that says letters of authority that is dated and is signed by the clerk, this is a final order. Yes, it is. No, it isn't because it doesn't have, well, it, it's not dated. Well, see here where it says August 4th, 2020, that's the date of the order because it says date of order. Right. Or, and they, they're just not accepting it because it's not what they're used to seeing. And when you, what I was really worried about was an estate that is contested and has a sense from people overseas where it's not easy to get the original materials sent. Um, so it, I, I can't e-file it. And if I drop it off, I don't have a receipt. That's right. So I'm going to yeah. mail this certified mail 
and the very helpful people at Middlesex Probate through the virtual registry said, it's okay, if you have um, the green postcard, a delivery receipt, yeah. and we can't find the paperwork, we'll accept your copies, which I think is an excellent workaround. Yeah. But well, it doesn't actually play out the way that, you know, that's what I'm finding at least. It's not really working. Most of the counties are like that. It's, it's a real bummer. And Middlesex, I understand, is now having the employees are one day at the one week at the office, one week from home. They don't take files with them. That's right. That's right. So when I dropped something off earlier this week, maybe it'll get looked at this week. But if not, it's not going to get no one's going to look at it until a week from Monday, which and then it's going to take three weeks to do this and six weeks to do that. And the clients are champing at the bit. It's not as predictable as it would, they would like it to be. Whether it's as predictable as it could be, I think clients sometimes have unusual expectations. Um, oh, that's, that's for sure. I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic, you know? I mean, and it does, it applies to the hearings also. You know, I mean, I, I personally like the Zoom hearings and I like the telephone hearings. And it's great because, you know, it's great for the clients because, you know, you get the 11 o'clock Zoom or whatever it is, you log in 15, you know, bing, bang, boom, 15, 20 minutes later, you're done. You don't have to sit at the courthouse all day in that terrible bench, you know, crowded, you know, courthouse room or whatever it is. And, um, you know, but the the other side of that sword is the judges are, only, you know, it feels great when you're doing it. But to make that happen, the judges are only hearing 10 cases a day instead of, oh, wow. you know, what, 40 or 50 cases. So, you know, I was, it's funny. I think, um, I think Judge Ricky was telling me this. This was a month ago. I think she said there were like 10,000 DOR cases on, back or, on backlog that hadn't been heard. So, I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, I know, um, contempts aren't being you know in most cases aren't even getting you're not getting summonses um you know i think most trials aren't even happening i know trials are, they're trying to start doing trials um you know it's a very odd time to be a lawyer and to do this work for people um yeah there, there's the there's the, the financial aspect of what i was doing um although i'm happy not to be doing it right now I would think people who were doing the work that I was doing are probably doing very well um, because the, the motivation to get out of the courthouse is pretty great, especially when you can't get there. I mean, we've got a bunch of questions. I'm going to turn to them in a second, but you know, the funny thing I've noticed, Bill, and you know, I try to do mediation or conciliation whenever I can. Um, and I've talked to a number of retired judges over the summer and almost uniformly people agree that um, it is much, much, much more difficult to settle cases now than it was, you know, a year ago. And that doesn't, you know, necessarily have to do with the tax bill, you know, tax deductible alimony going away. We figured that would make things more difficult back then. But um, just people are, I think in general, you know, I've run into so many lawyers that are like, I'm not mediating anything. Don't even bother. We're going to go see our judge. And it's like, you know, I don't even know that that benefits lawyers anymore. I don't know why people would want to do that. I mean, it really makes no sense to me because they're, you know, my caseload, you know, just keeps building up because cases just aren't even moving anymore. I mean, I've got cases that had hearings back in March, April, May, and we've literally got no orders from judges. They're, we're just like literally have done nothing in these cases in you know three to six months, just waiting for something from court that we haven't haven't even seen yet. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's a sort of a weird way to exist doing this type of work. Well, the cal the whole calendar system when, when it was a new thing um, was all meant to discourage that sort of endless feeling to cases and to motivate people to settle cases because they knew they always left with a new date on the calendar, even if it was imperfect. And even if it uh, often got kicked out, 
people always felt like they were on um, some sort of a uh, metric that would encourage them to be talking settlement earlier. And I guess that's falling apart. Um, but I, I don't know how people are going to uh, deal with it. If you, if you look six months ahead, a year from, year from now, people still aren't getting trial dates. They're going to have to go somewhere. Um, well, that's right. I mean, the math just doesn't work. Like even if, even, you know, if they're, if there's, if the judges are supposed to be doing 40 cases a day and they're only doing 10, I mean, even if that goes on for two months, I mean, that's, that's an extra year's worth of work for someone, right? Like it, it, it falls on top of itself very quickly. I mean, I, w I wonder whether part of the problems, Nancy, is with the, with the probate side is that the, they've never given the sense of urgency on the probate side that they've done the family side because the squeaky wheel isn't alive. Well, no, but the squeaky wheel sometimes comes down to the attorneys who say it is urgent that we get this resolved now. Yeah. For example, um, the evil nephew is attempting to expatriate funds yeah. uh, by having them wired to an account in Namibia, for example. Just, just for example, I'll give you the docket number separately. So we really need the court to act now to prevent that. And, and they, in the old days when we could go into the courthouse and walk yeah. into a courtroom that had a judge on the bench, remember those days? Um, they yeah. were very responsive to those emergencies. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that's missing now, honestly, one of the biggest things that has affected my practice is that I can't talk to the clerk anymore. And, you know, that was just such a great, you know, going in and saying, you know, instead of showing up and saying, I have an emer you know, here's all my emergency files. I just go in and talk to, so you know, judge so-and-so's clerk and just say, hey, this is going on. Is this an emergency? Am, am I, you know, do you want to do a hearing on this? And, you know, that usually worked out very well. And I, I guess the answer is to just start doing emergency filings. I don't, I, I don't really know what the path is. I mean, I agree with you, Nancy. It, this is a, a very complicated issue. Well, I would think you do that at your peril because if the second or third time the word gets around that you're that you're fomenting emergencies. Well, that's true. That's the other problem. It's gonna. You it's don't want to be that one that shows up with the yeah the ex parte hearings at you know Friday at three or whatever emergencies. Yeah, one thing. One thing I've wondered about about the and I didn't view it this way when I was representing clients so much, but there's a certain safety valve aspect of being able to get people into a courthouse yeah. let them sit all day if they have to to watch 10 other cases and see how bad it can get um and get up and have five minutes to have their lawyer motor mouth through all the bad things that they want to say about the other person yeah There's certain safety of a, a valve aspect to that with the client the client walks away and they were never really frustrated by the by the process and frustrated by how slow it was to get a response Mm -hmm. but they had an event yeah and it's no less in probate cases because i mean i mediated, mediated probate cases and the siblings in those case those contested will cases are just as crazed as divorce clients are except they're fighting about things going back to when they were two years old um so i'm wondering whether everybody's having that experience with with the clients are more difficult more anxious more wound up for lack of a safety valve which may not have accomplished anything except giving them a chance to blow off steam or see you blow off steam for them. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been doing in my practice is I have to tell the clients, you know, I, I have no idea what's going on. And, <laughs> and no, but I as seriously, and I've told a lot of people I'm doing this. I mean, I I've changed my fee agreement to include, you know, a little blurb that says, the schedule is a, <laughs> is a mess. I have no idea what the timing's going to be. You know, everything I thought to be the case in terms of scheduling and filing, it's all out of whack right now. And, you know, we're, we're going to do the best we possibly can, but it's, you know, those processes are, and it, you know, varying from county to county, you just, sometimes you have no idea what you're getting into when you start trying to file stuff. And, you know, I've noticed the filing takes forever now, you know, it's funny that the, the hearings, you're not sitting around waiting, yeah. but this process of e-filing, getting rejected, 
and then mailing, you know, it all, it, you, you try to file three different ways before you actually get anywhere. Well, if you reflect back on the last case that you and I had, our arbitration case and the number of cases that we had by, by video back then, or motions and, and the speed with which motions got resolved and, and, the, and the insistence of having something scheduled behind it, those people, they weren't happy most of the time, but, but they had a sense that the thing had a beginning point, midpoint, and end point that could, be, that could be predicted and quantified. So the more the courts get away from providing anything close to that, the more difficult the cases are gonna be. Yeah, yeah. I believe. Nan, were you trying to ask a question? No, I was saying that Mithra's point deserves discussion. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. So I, I'm a part of the, I think the intransigence around pro se litigants, and pro se is one thing and low income is another. There's overlap there, but there are some people who just say, I don't value this enough to hire an attorney. Now please court bend over backwards for me, although I am willing to pay um, various other high ticket items because I value those services. Now that, that's a reasonable personal choice. And I'm not sure how to put that together with people who don't have that choice and are pro se because they can't afford an attorney. So I think I must've missed what the question was. There was a question. Yeah, there, here, let me, there's a couple questions in the chat. Why don't I turn to those? Um, so uh, Diane says, do you think the probate and family court will use Zoom when COVID is over? Um, what type of matters do you think can be effectively handled by Zoom and what should be in person? I mean, I know for certain that they, the answer to that is yes. Um, at least the judges I've talked about, most, basically every judge that I know that's using Zoom intends to do it um, as long as they're able to, because I think most of them feel like it's efficient. And, you know, the issue is there's lots of judges that don't have Zoom. There's actually, if you can believe it, there are judges who don't even have a computer provided by the state. They're using their personal computer. Um, what about I, the emails? Aren't we going to get into an email gate? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Friday It's August. Yeah, no, no worries. But I mean, I think, I think judge, I think a lot of judges want to keep doing Zoom if they can. Um, you know, I mean, I, my personal feeling is the, the bulk of what we do, at least as family lawyers, can be handled over Zoom. I think if you get into a situation where there's, you know, a GAL and a, or a guardian and, you know, some of these complicated custody issues that involve, you know, a dozen people to show up for hearing, that might be a little trickier. But, um, I do. I so I did get. What's that, Bill? It's it's got to it's got to bring the heat way down, which the judges must appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And they can mute people. They have more control over people that can't you know can't stop talking, which I think a lot of judges like. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's amazing though that half the judges aren't even using it, and you know, there's a lot of judges that have it are still doing phone because there are bandwidth issues in the courthouses and they're having trouble with connectivity. And so they're just not using it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, well, I'm really not sure is. what the question was before about pro se's, but, but that brings up another pro se issue, just like it does in public schools. Um, pro se's who don't have access to, to high functioning broadband or high functioning um, uh, laptops, are they going to have access to the course at all? And of course the answer is that's gotta be fixed. I mean, yeah. we live in a country that should be able to have broadband everywhere. It's no less important than um, the telephone, um, more important than the telephone in, most, in many respects. So it would be fixed in the courts. I don't think the, the society, I don't think the society is gonna put the genie back in the bottle on technology after this is over, whether it's colleges or courts or anybody else. People better get used to this because this is going to be a big part of what they do. You're not going to see your doctor in person um, as, as much as you used to, but you're going to yeah. see him a lot more often if you have to, and you're going to see him a lot more quickly. Um, and if the courts wrap their head around the technology um, and get some money to do it with, 
same thing will be in the courts. Everything I've seen from the Supreme Judicial Court's um, communications um, all say we're not going back. Yeah, I think that's right. Not going back. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't think. Um, the uh, I want to. I want to say something about that, but I, I don't want to miss these questions either because. So yeah. the question is. Private mediation conciliation is great for litigants who can afford it, but what about low-income litigants? I think this was what we're. Um, what options are there for those types of people, including pro ses? Have you and then have you heard from judges about what courts are going to do about this? I mean, you know, so this is what we're one of the things we're going to be talking about next week. I'll, I'll, I think Bill will have some th some things to say about this question, but um, yeah. There's, you know, next week we're going to be talking about uh, the the county bar conciliation programs, and I, and Nan Sauer, who's on the line, she's going to be she does a lot of that work, and um, I actually have one of those cases right now. I mean, it's only fifty bucks, and you get, you know, you're supposed to only get a couple hours of of someone's time, but people are really generous, and you know, the the case I have. Um, the lawyer's rates probably 400 bucks an hour and he's given us like seven or eight hours. Um, and you know, I, I, I know that, you know, that's what we do when we sign up, you know, you get committed to these cases, you want to try and help them get settled. If it's, if, if you think you, there's a chance, I think most of these lawyers will try and hang in there. You know, they're not signing up for a hundred hours, but if they can help you get done in, in oh, six or seven goodness. hours. So, um, you know, yep. and then there's the limited conciliation program. We're going to be talking about that next week, which is similar type of concept. If you have like one or two sort of def well-defined issues, a retired judge will meet with you and try and work that through. Um, what else do you think people can do in those situations, Bill? Well, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna get on my soapbox a little bit, little bit about arbitration um, because um, the question included that, and. Um, I spent the last dozen years um, trying to get to the point where the, where the legislature would consider a, an arbitration bill that would cover family law specifically. Um, and part of the reason for that was because I've seen it in other states where that happened. And by doing that and having A, probate judges learn that it's okay to let people arbitrate um, and B, people getting used to um, not always having to see a literal black robe, which people are probably getting more used to now. Um, markets developed um, with arbitrators at different rates of pay. And the people who could afford the $800 an hour lawyers could afford $700 an hour arbitrators. And the people can, who can afford $100 an hour lawyers can afford $75 an hour arbitrators. And if it becomes known and well enough known and accepted, and Massachusetts law is wide open on the point. If you look at Supreme Court law, you look at, at appellate court law, arbitrators have vast authority. Um, people will find that arbitration becomes available at low levels of cost. I did a lot of arbitrations with pro se litigants. And not all of them, as, as Nancy points out, not, not all of them weren't doing it because they couldn't afford lawyers. A lot of them just didn't want to have lawyers. And um, through arbitration, they were able to set up processes that were streamlined and quick and really avoided a lot of the nonsense that we as trial lawyers are, are taught to pursue um, strategically and otherwise um, and figured out ways through arbitration to have an hour and a half hearing um, that resolved a case as opposed to a year and a half of litigation. And it, people put their minds to it, they can do it. And they can figure out um, how to make things like arbitrations quite, quite inexpensive and quite um, underpriced as compared to what long-term litigation costs them. So I hope people don't give up on, on eventually that becoming um, a real option because it'll find its market for all different levels of client of client need. Um, the the court conciliation programs are great. It's it's always been an, an amazing thing to me how much lawyers are willing to give away um, their time. Um, and I I remember in um, when I was the, the Boston Bar Family Law 
committee chair uh, back in the 80s and, and the courts were, were talking about having some help, um, the Lawyer for the Day program developed. Yep. Uh, it was a, pro a pilot program we did with, with uh, Suffolk County. Um, and now the court couldn't do without it. And same thing with conciliation programs. Once they're, they're embedded and people begin to take them seriously as they have, it's a tremendous safety valve for the courts. And it's, it's a lever to use to try to get cases settled. Um, and people are sometimes to a fault, are generous with their time. So um, yeah. it's good you're having a program on it because it's, it's only gonna get more important. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, that case we had, I mean, this probably wouldn't have worked out in a low income type situation, but the, the concept in general, I think a lot of lawyers don't really understand that arbitration is not more expensive than going to court, even though you're paying for that. You know, that case we had, that one you wrapped up for us in August, I mean, I forget what they paid you. They probably paid you 20 grand or something. It wasn't, you know, peanuts, it was real money. But, but that case was totally insane yeah. and they would have spent $500,000 doing it with, it was with Judge Ross and Essex. And I mean, they would have been doing it for three years and they would have spent easily spent several hundred thousand dollars. Well, the motion, the motion practice alone in that case um, would have, would have been weeks worth of court time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they saved a considerable amount of money and I think we got that done in less than a year once we got going. I mean, oh, it was pretty quick. No, definitely. And that seemed long to them. Yeah, right. <laughs> no question about it, it seemed long to them. Um, but it was, compared to the alternative, it was very efficient. And I mean, what do you the overall fees split three ways between two lawyers and arbitrator were less than they would have been um, otherwise with just lawyers fees. I mean, what do you think, you know, if you have a case that you're trying to get in to any, anything other than court, like how do you think people should be talking about it th these days? Other than, I mean, it's obvious that it's gonna be faster, but is, can you think of any other ways to talk about it that might compel a difficult lawyer to give it a shot? Do you mean in terms of getting into any of mediation, conciliation, arbitration, yeah. I mean, I, the efficiency is, I would think, is blatantly obvious. Well, but, for, one, for one thing, the, a lot of the people who really, really refuse to do that are running the economics of the law practice on, on the ability to charge for court time. But you can't do that anymore. I mean, that's the astounding right. thing. That's right. So, so if, people, if people can't make a living on the back of court time, they can't have their case just stack up forever. They can have to figure out some way to move them. Right. And so that's a lever that I think, I think you have with, with, with those, that particular subset of lawyers. Um, Cause eventually the clients are going to walk away if, if nothing happens. Yeah. They'll, they'll go to somebody else. I mean, one of the things they, they could be learning is um, that having 20, 20 clients who are, um, we're not, we're less miserable. Uh -huh at the experience, they're gonna pay their bills more reliably. Um, and, and 20 happier clients are a much more pleasant way to live than having, having 10 more miserable clients yeah, uh, yeah. for whom you charge a lot of money, but you can't collect it. Right, right. To, to this question about the Zoom meetings, uh, the Zoom hearings rather, the other thing I wanted to say is, I know that I, I haven't personally gone into a courthouse and I want to bring that up before we break because I think that's the next big issue that's going to be coming and um, I did talk just for people on the line I did talk to Chief Casey and I think we're going to try and do a seminar um, in September um, I think he wants to wait and see how things go over the next month and because uh, phase two of the reopening was just this week and um, but I have spoken to him and he does want to um, do some sort of uh, seminar and reach out to the bar and talk about what's going on. I think he's hoping for more information about how the reopening actually ends up working out. And I think it's still a, you know, a work in progress, obviously. But um, there's, there's gonna be a lot more coming in September and October. But the interesting thing about in-person hearings um, I've gotten feedback from a couple judges. I know Judge Armstrong in Essex had a big, uh, had a trial and um, it was 
from what I heard, it was terrible. Everyone was, you know, everyone had their masks. First of all, everyone had their masks on. And this is how it sounds like when you're talking to someone. So then in Essex, and a lot of the courthouses are like this, the um, the ceilings are, are much higher than a normal office. So the second you talk between the mask and between the mask and the ceilings, the sound evaporates the second it leaves your mouth. So, I mean, what's, she, what's the quality of the record? Oh, it must have been a mess. I bet half of it wasn't even on there. And I think she didn't even hear half of what happened. And, and, and also keep in mind, everyone's like 15 feet apart because it's a massive courtroom that no one's using. You know, there's no audience or anything like that. Um, so it was, it was a total disaster. The feedback I've gotten is that these in-person hearings have been terrible. Um, I don't know if anyone else on the line has had an in-person and has anything they can share, but, um, I'd be curious. I think think one beneficial thing is that, is that lawyers who tried to lean over the witness box and, (laughs) and, uh, and intimidate witnesses, not, not quite so easy when you have to say 15 feet away. (laughs) <laughs> that's true yep yep well and on zoom also right i mean how intimidating you know you jump in front of you stick your face in the camera or something um well I, you know, I, the- I think when, I, when i think about depositions all the depositions i took all over over the years um part of the reason the, ex- the experience was so unpleasant for everybody was the physical proximity of everybody and, <laughs> right. and, and i mean I, I shall name no names but but one of our colleagues uh, I do. I do remember throwing a full can of Coke across the table um, at somebody and narrowly missing that person's head. I and couldn't have been man. Only that person. That person was that person's client. I've heard that story, and it wasn't me, David. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you know the 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 intimidating point of um, that in face face to face thing of the deposition. Well, you lose some of the benefit of having a witness feel it's unpleasant and not want to face you again in the courtroom. But on the other hand, that's not really the purpose for a deposition. It really right. is to get information. And I think you probably get information much more efficiently when the heat is, is down. I mean, I've probably done a dozen Zoom depositions and I, I frankly have enjoyed doing it. I've, I've, you know, I've had no problems as long as you, you know, prep people in advance and make sure they get all the logistics sorted out. You don't waste a half an hour and, and, you know, your patience on it. It works pretty well. Um, you know, one of the big things that's going to come up, and I don't know how some of the people on the line are built, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a really difficult thing for the trial courts in general to figure out, which is, you know, people who say they don't want to come into court. Um, right. You know, I can you even imagine filing a motion on your client's case describing your 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 uh, health conditions and your personal medical information as to why you shouldn't have to do an in-person hearing over a Zoom hearing? I mean, it's just, it's insanity to me. Yeah. And the trial court hasn't put anything out, you know, any uniform information out about this. Um, I, I really have no idea what they're going to do about that yeah I mean, if you if you get into a situation where either a judge or a clerk has to make a determination that somebody's um uh fears about coming to the courthouse on that particular day in that situation are reasonable or unreasonable there's no end to it yeah i mean i think it's the i was trying to figure out and i think the only thing that might have happened in the past that could have been roughly you know, at least in the stratosphere is, you know, and I'm sure you've done this bill, you know, motions to continue or, you know, things like that. Sometimes you do put personal things in there. You know, I had a death in the family. I need a, you know, some time off or can you remember anything like that? You know, were you comfortable putting your personal information in those motions? Try to put as little, as little as possible. Absolutely. Those are all public record. Yeah. So now you try to avoid it as much as you possibly can. And you can't go and tell the clerk, like, hey, go tell Judge so-and-so that, you know, my mom died or, you know, so-and-so's dying of cancer. I can't come in. Um, you can't have those conversations anymore. Well, I have, I have to say that, that, that for some reason that's bringing me back to, to a case that I, that I had in Judge Ginsburg's courtroom in the uh, very early 80s 
and I represented, I represented a woman in a contempt case and he had heard the divorce case. And um, poor Ann Berger, who, who represented uh, this husband in the case, I met her for the first time that day. She started to open her mouth and, um, and Judge Ginsburg told her to wait. But the last time, faked a heart attack on the witness stand. <laughs> and, and, um, and so please don't tell him that he's too ill to be here today, which is, which is what it was about. And, um, and people have been known to do all things to avoid being in their courtroom, including faking wow. heart attacks. Um, so that problem, that problem of people um, having to, to, to make, to, to um, advance reasons why they can't come into a courthouse there's, there's no way to verify anything. There's no way that people should have to put that kind of information on the record. They're going to have to come up with a solution that's, that basically says everyone's going to be here or no one has to be here and they won't be penalized for not being here. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are going to have to be, be able to walk into the courtroom with their client on a, on a, on a device. Um, because I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with a, you know, a, a, a pregnant client? Whose obstetrician has said, "Do not walk in. Do walk into any place where the, where you're at greater risk." Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, I I saw. I forget the. I, I guess the names aren't relevant. But on the uh, mass bar listserv, there was a lawyer who came in and basically said, um, "There was a judge in the probate and family court who was making a GAL who was older, and was high risk, come into court to testify for trial. What do I do?" Was basically the question. And I think it, uh, it got a lot of people's attention, and I'm not sure how it, I'm not sure how the situation ultimately resolved, but, um, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough issue. Yeah. Um, I know I wouldn't be volunteering to walk into a courthouse right now. Well, yeah, I know, and I think I think some judges are very are going to be very good about it, and I think some judges are going to say, I don't, I don't give a hoot, come in. And it's going to be hard for us as lawyers to sift through that without some consistency from the top. Yeah. Um, we're brushing up on two o'clock, but I see we've got all these people on mute and uh, on mute. And uh, who does anyone want to ask Bill anything while he's here? Uh, the next time you see him, he might be on the roof and unable to talk to you. Yeah. If you see, if you see me again, ever. <laughs> Can we come can visit come, in Anasquam? Can we come to Anasquam? <laughs> yes, you're more than welcome. <laughs> but you'll have to quarantine for 14 days when you get here. Oh, no. I think I have an exemption on that. I got it from Professor Carberry, who was my thesis advisor. Uh-huh. Did you study with Professor Carberry as well? I did not. Josiah Carberry? Nope. Then I think I'm mistaken. But I'll show you my, my quarantine exemption <laughs> certificate anytime. Okay. <laughs> Bill, it's nice to see you. Likewise. I'm, I'm looking at a photograph of you at the moment. Yeah, I was on video and then I determined that it was a precarious situation. I'm on my mobile phone, so I apologize for the lack of That's real okay. live footage. That's okay. It's always good to see you regardless. Same. And I see Mary hiding down at the bottom of the screen, too. She's not going to fess up to it. I am, Bill, but I'm on my way out to Western Mass, so I may see you. <laughs> you are, you Holyoke, are you? That's right. It's good to see you. Your mayor's in trouble, Mary. Mary. Yeah, Mary, I, I, thought maybe, I thought maybe that was actually Norman Jacobs posing as Mary Farreter. <laughs> no, he would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he knows how to use Zoom now. <laughs> well, I, I have I actually have a date with Norman to bring him a sandwich next Thursday. We're going to be at least 15 feet apart on his back deck. I have heard all about that. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen him in a very long What's that? It's good to hear your voice, Bill. And likewise yours. Likewise yours. We were actually looking forward, Mary, to, to, to bringing one of our grandkids out to the, to the baseball camp in Holyoke. Um, the old Miller's Field, um, and of course it got canceled this year. 
There's always next year, Bill. Next year, that's right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going into the Valley of Darkness, so good luck. <laughs> Take it easy. All right, well, I guess that's a wrap. Um, right. Everybody have a good weekend. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And uh, uh, we'll be here, and, and Nan will have fixed her technical issues by next Tuesday. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.